You're listening to the CPR of Life podcast, a show about creating community through connection, awakening potential, and uncovering the resilience of the human spirit through an understanding of state of mind. It's about living a life well-lived and uncovering what often gets in the way. Welcome to episode number 11. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Amir Karkudi. Amir is witty and wise. He wears many hats. In addition to being a husband and a father, he owns several restaurants. He's a kick-ass coach, and he works at a recovery center. I recently completed a course with Amir and Ankush Jain. The two of them working together are incredible. It was a fabulous journey. But what I saw time and time again is that Amir shows up fully and he gives with an open heart. And I really think that comes through in this conversation. I hope you enjoy. So welcome today. I have with me Amir Karkudi. And I've had the pleasure of working with Amir and just recently got off one of his programs. And I can't say enough good things about him. I have much respect for him and I'm really happy that he agreed to have a conversation with me today. So welcome, Amir. Thank you so much. It's actually an honor to have this conversation with you. Like you mentioned, we did we did have a lot of fun. We learned a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think this podcast come to, came to fruition is because you decided one day, hey, I'm doing this podcast and I'm going to start interviewing people. So I was like, I'm excited to jump on. So I'm looking forward to this. Well, one of the things I've seen from you, Amir, over time is um, your ability to sit in a conversation and bounce both sides. So in, you have a Facebook group that can get quite um, vocal, uh, you know, and people can have very different views on things. And I really admired the way that you've been able to kind of sit on both sides of the fence and look at both sides of the fence and still come out of it. Where in the beginning, I was like, I'm still not sure what position he's taking. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I admire the fact that you can sit and, and reflect on both sides of a conversation. And we were just, before we came online, talking about um, somebody that you've been listening to who does that. And do, were you always like that? Were you always able to kind of sit and listen, listen to understand versus listen to respond kind of? You know, it's funny. I I grew up, I, I've always been an entertainer type and I've always wanted to see how people react when their, tr- not their true self comes out, but when, when they're, when their skin, when they're out of their skin and, and, and they're naked. Right. Mm. There's something about that that I like to that I like to see. So when I created my group, my group is uh, what the F are the three principles, which is a spiritual group. But like you said, it's very vocal. And for me, I don't want to hear about how life looks when you're having a great time. I want to hear what life looks like when you're in the trenches and you're pissed off and someone said something that triggered you, how do you respond in that state of mind? Because what happens in, in, in a lot of communities, it's like when people post selfies, they post the most beautiful selfies about them and their wife, but they don't show the picture of themselves 20 minutes ago when they got into a fight over what they're going to eat or like, why did they let their kid watch TV you know, longer than they should? And so for me, that's what I want to know. 
Yeah. How are you the 99% of the other times when you're not showing the most perfect side of you? And it turns out some of the most spiritual people get just get just as upset as non-spiritual people. Some of the most spiritual people get triggered over the stupidest things, just like non-spiritual. And what that did for me is to, for me, the biggest insight I got is once you're enlightened, you're still a human. Once you're spiritual, you still get the scars and bruises. And so for me, it was like, oh, great. So it doesn't look any different on the other side. And that's kind of what I've always liked about listening for a reaction (laughs) or speaking for a reaction, so to speak. I bet you your parents enjoyed that side of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my, my, my parents are instigators too. I think I probably learned it from them. I can't imagine a family dinner at your house then. <laughs> oh, geez, I know. Yeah, I'm glad selfies didn't exist back then. <laughs> right. As much. So you moved here, when, how old, so you moved here from Tehran, is that correct? Yeah. Uh-huh. And how old were you when you came here? So we left in 1979 during the uh, revolution. And I was, I believe, eight months old when oh, we wow. moved to Germany. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. My my parents, and now that I'm older and I have a child, I have no freaking idea how they packed mm-hmm. two suitcases, left their house, their family, their jobs, and went to a country that they didn't speak the language, didn't know anybody, and tried to create a life. I mean, it, it's mind boggling. It's like if I had to get up one day with my wife and my daughter and say, okay, we're moving to China. Don't know anything about China. And I'm talk about resiliency. I mean, that to me is mind blowing. I have a newfound respect for my parents, but we moved to Germany when I was eight months old, stayed there for six years until we got our visas to move to the United States. And then from there, it just went from one city to another, to another state. And we were constantly moving, trying to figure our lives out. Why Germany? Why did they choose Germany? Because at the time, that was the place where they were not happily letting immigrants in, but that was the closest route from Tehran to Germany to get to the US. So it was kind of a safe space to get to our final destination, which was the United States. So what was it like moving around a lot for you? It was the worst. It it was terrible. I mean, uh, I'll I'll put it bluntly. I hated it. I'd make friends right away. And, uh, or not, I shouldn't say right away. I would, when I finally made friends, which, you know, when you're a young kid is not easy, you know, especially when you're an immigrant and you don't speak the language and you're new and your clothes don't look the same as the people <laughs> at school, right? <laughs> so it was, and that's, I think, where I learned to be the entertainer. That's where I learned to have thicker skin. That's where I learned that reactions don't necessarily mean as much as they do when people look at you funny or when they do. It doesn't say as much about me as it says about their state of mind. And so I just learned at a young age not to take things as personal, which in turn, actually, you know, some of my greatest friends were the biggest bullies in school. You know, they would bully me and they saw that I didn't give the reaction they were looking for. And you would see their heart. You would see that they're hurting inside. Yeah. And they would, they would confide in me. Right. And looking back, I actually had someone recently in high school. We had our 20 year high school reunion. Someone came to me and said, I hated you, Amir. I hated you because how loving and fun you were. And it was something that 
I couldn't see in myself. And then she said, but it took me 20 years to realize I have that love and, and, and compassion in me as well. And that's like, I didn't, I didn't know who this person was. I, I really didn't yeah. know what was going on, but it, it turns out even the, the, the biggest, hardest bullies want to be loved and want to be loving to others. And it's something that I just figured out, you know, I guess the greatest gift of moving all around is I got to see as, as different as we may look from the outside, we're all looking for the same thing inside after all. That's interesting when you said about the clothes and stuff. So we moved here when I was seven and same thing is just kind of, we didn't, we talked English, but we talked, people would say a funny English. I came from Scotland and I'll never forget my first day of school because in Scotland we wore uniforms. But here, our first day of school, my mom had us dressed in, you know, like a shirt, a vest, a checkered pants and stuff. And, and the kids did, they, you know, they, they reacted, they were, they made fun of us. But it is interesting for, to hear you say, like, for me, I, I took the difference and I kind of, I was uncomfortable with it, but it's true. It doesn't matter where you go. Um, we are all the same and that was a, that's a big gift. And it sounds like you had the wisdom to, to kind of embrace that at a younger age than a lot of people do, even when they're older. Yeah. And look, I, I didn't see it all the time, you know, and I, I was scared and I was nervous and I was, I, you know, a big introvert, which is funny because people now would say I'm, a, I'm an extrovert and I'm still an introvert for the most part. Like I, I like to sit in a quiet room and read for uh, by myself. If I could choose between being in a big party and going on a walk with my wife, I, I'd choose that any day of the week. But what it did for me being nervous and being scared and being introverted is for me, I realized that in spite of being scared, I still was able to make friends. In spite of the anxiety I got, I was still able to do good at school or is it well or good? See, I don't even know if I'm using the proper words, but I was able to do what I needed to do at school to excel. And in spite of being insecure, I was able to run track or, you know, do a presentation. And so I stopped using my emotions or feelings, the, the, the fluctuating feelings as a way to tell me what I can do or cannot do in life. So it was kind of like the weather for me, realistically, it was like, Oh, I'm anxious today. Okay. I'm going to go do, do what I need to do today. Oh, I have anxiety today, but I'm going to go, uh, speak to someone new today. So it mattered less and less how I felt, you know, my, my state of mind that would fluctuate because it wasn't a good guiding point point for me to do things in life. Right. And I think a lot of people still use who they think they are moment to moment as a way to, to do things in life. Right. I feel anxious. So maybe I should hold off. I feel insecure. So maybe I shouldn't do a podcast. Mm. Whereas, you know, before this call, people, you know, they didn't hear you say, oh yeah, I'm nervous, but I talked to some of the most amazing people on this podcast. And you're, you're a perfect example of being scared and doing a podcast don't have to stop you from doing a podcast. True. True. And we learned that in your program. Um, what age do you think you were? And is this something that you're kind of your parents pointed you towards that kind of like, even if you're feeling uncomfortable, still do it, you know, or is this just something kind of you innately embraced? You know, my parents weren't around when they were young. They didn't speak the language. They didn't go to any of my school meetings because there's, you know, I, you know, when I got a detention one time 
And what what made me sad, I remember leaving uh, school and got a detention and I cried to my teacher. And the teacher said, why are you crying, Amir? Are you, you know, are you going to get in trouble when you get home? And I said, no, I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm sad because my parents don't know how to read this attention slip. I'm going to have to tell them why I got in trouble and what this means. And I said, it breaks my heart that my parents who are supposed to be teaching me or reading me things about what's going on in school, but it's flipped. I'm the one telling them how well I'm doing. I'm the one that's telling them what's going on in school because they couldn't read and write. And so in that respect, it wasn't my parents that taught me. It was the fact that when I was left to my own devices, I had this intrinsic understanding that for the most part, I want to thrive. I want to do good. That was like that was my innate well-being. That was what I knew about myself. I don't know how I got there, but I don't know if it was moving enough times and seeing it over and over again that in the midst of a storm, I was still okay time and time again that I started to believe it. I didn't know, I didn't know if it was true, but I just started to believe it. And it happened to confirm itself over and over again. Hmm. It's that's that's a struggle for many people with the parents not being able to read and write and that's a, that can be a struggle and it's also an opportunity when you flip it like you say where you get to see your own kind of resilience and and kind of guide your own path to go on but it must have been hard for them as well yeah it was and and you know my 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 mom alone um, had 11 brothers and 12 sisters, I believe, growing up. And a lot of them got killed in the Afghan war with the Russians. And, you know, growing, like I said, I, I didn't know a lot of what my parents um, went through. But, you know, they, they, there, there's a saying that my mom said, I don't know if it's true, but, you know, I asked my mom, you know, she had severe clinical depression. And, you know, my dad has had, heart attacks and tachycardias and I'm, I'm i'm guessing it's probably from the way that they handled their their anxiety and depression that they both went through with you know all the stuff that they they said that they dealt with and i said you know how did you i never really experienced that mom and dad what did you go through and they said look here's the deal you know there's no there's no time for depression when you're in a breadline like they had to go feed a family and they, yes, they were depressed. Yes, they were anxious, but they had to feed a family. So yeah. depression came secondary to having yeah. to raise, raise a family. It doesn't mean they didn't have depression. It doesn't mean people have depression shouldn't do, should or shouldn't do what my parents did. But it was, it was a really big insight for me that they found something bigger than their state of mind which was their family, which was surviving and thriving, which is building a home. And for me, it was a really like cool thing to look because again, it goes back to, you know, when you spend a lot of time trying to figure out your state of mind versus living, you live in a conceptual world, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and I've just learned that when I spend my time trying to figure out a conceptual world of what life should look like or why it didn't look like this or where, where my life should have been, I'm not in life. I'm not living. I'm not in my experience of life. I'm in a conceptual experience of life. And it turns out when you're trying to wrangle a conceptual monster that fluctuates day in and day out, 
it's a terrible use of your time. <laughs> it's just a terrible use of your time. And so while people are wrangling conceptual monsters, I'm doing shit in life. Right? I still have those monsters. They're just not worth fighting for yeah. anymore. And that's something my parents taught, not because they taught it to me per se, but that's what they lived. That's, that yeah. was their essence. So, And, and I, say, I would say more often than not, like we learn from what people do, not what they say. So yeah. I'm a big believer in that with our parents. It's interesting, um, before my dad passed away, I sat and I had a conversation with him and I'd never had this one particular conversation about when we first came to Canada. He came over two months before we did our three months. And to sit and listen to his perception of that experience and to understand it now, you know, from a different place and, you know, when we first moved over and, and you know, I was a kid. But it's, it's um, the power of those conversations is, is, it's such a gift to have. And um, for all of our parents who, who do these things, it's, it's something that I, I'm in awe of my parents. I'm in awe of my dad for all that he did. And I'm in awe of my mom and your parents. Like it's, it's such a journey and those are stories that need to be captured. You know, like it's like your daughter would, you know, I'm sure one day when she's a bit older would, I mean, think the world of those stories, you know? I agree. And I, I, I hope, I don't need to hope, to be honest with you. I know that she has a capacity to see something, whether it's from me or whether it's about the terrible things that may show up in her life, that, that capacity to see it a different way, the real way, or the, 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 the experiential way, not the conceptual way is available mm -hmm. to her. I know that. So I don't hope, you know, the only thing I hope is that she spends more time in life than in concepts and thoughts and, and ideas of the world. I hope she experiences the world directly mm. and sees her own resiliency because I know it's there for her. And, and I remember, you know, I, I work at a recovery center and one of the therapists and I got to talking and he said, you know, what do you do with your clients at the recovery center uh, when they're freaking out, you know, if you're doing a group and someone's in a really low level mood or, a, a you know, anxious. And I said, I don't do anything because I can't st change their state of mind, but I know they will fundamentally be okay. And when they see that I really believe that something shifts in them, something truly shifts. And, 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 and I, you know, I saw that to be true when my, my dad had uh, a tachycardia. We thought it was uh, a tachycardia attack or, or we thought it was a heart attack and he was on the floor. He was holding his heart and um, the firefighters came and they happened to be from my city and I went to high school with a lot of them, right? Yeah. And they came in, they're like, hey, what's up, Amir? What's going on? Oh, your dad's on the ground here. We'll take care of him. But there was this like, they knew he's going to be okay because they've seen this a bunch of times. They knew they're going to mm -hmm. inject him with something that's going to reduce his heart rate and all that stuff. And when I saw that they knew that my dad was fundamentally going to be okay, not because they're trying to calm me down or things are going to be okay because they're going to wish for that, but they've done this enough times. They've seen enough of life experience yeah. that that calmed me down, right? I didn't need to jump in and help my dad and help them. They had it by that point. They, they got it. They're like, 
you know, you can now back off. We got it from here, right? And in the same way, I've seen life experience enough times where I've been okay that I could say, Amir, you can back off. Life will take care of it. We're here now. We got it. We got wisdom. We got insight. We will take care of it from here. You just enjoy the show. And so in that, in that respect, like, I don't know what we're, what we're talking about, but it, oh yeah, my, my daughter. Yeah. Like, I want her to know that she has built-in fire, firefighters in her, built-in paramedics, built-in police officers that will, that will protect her if she is available to life. And that to me is the biggest gift that I can give her, that she's equipped with every single service person that will take care of her when we're not around. And, and, and that I, that, that's my only hope, you know? Oh, like, is it the, is it the phrase, you know, helicopter parents or something who are there, like they're, where they're always kind of around? Is that yeah. the, I can't if that's a proper term. Yeah, I think that's it. It's yeah. Like always hovering. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the anti-helicopter kind of in a way of kind of giving them the space to, to find their own wings. Um, your journey as an individual, I mean, your parents' journey and your, your, your family story is, is super, like, it's amazing. It's fascinating. And it's, it's um, a great example of resilience, but so was yours. So you came here and you, did you grow up in San Diego? Mm, I grew up in Seattle okay. and uh, Northern California in a place called Fremont and Union City. So no, I, this was my last, uh, I've been here the longest though. It's your last stop. <laughs> my last, yes, it's going to definitely be my today, last stop. Today, <laughs> today, right. Um, so you, um, you, your family, was it a family restaurant that you, you're involved in or you have restaurants? Yeah. So I, uh, I own a chain of restaurants with my brother and my dad. Uh, when I graduated high school, I was a straight A student, uh, took the SATs, were offered scholarships and the whole deal, and I, and I didn't take any of them. I joined a family restaurant, and um, as soon as I graduated high school, I opened up a second, a third, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth, and a seventh. I had seven restaurants at some point. The economy you know, had a downturn. I, uh, my brother and I got, got greedy and thought, look, if we just open up more restaurants, we're going to be rich and we'll never have to work. And uh, the universe kicked us in the ass and said, that's not how we work, buddy. It doesn't work that way. I lost my house. I lost my car. I uh, had to move back into my parents as an adult, as an entrepreneur that was making a lot of money um, and how to get back on my feet. It was the most humbling experience that I would never change for the world. And, uh, and you know, I went back to the you know drawing board and I said, I'm not going to make restaurants because of money. I want to make restaurants because of service, because of my staff members, because I care about my customers. And to this day, um, we just actually closed my last restaurant, uh, my fourth restaurant, and we're down to three restaurants. And it's been the best time of my life. I get to connect with my employees because I thought it's about volume. You yeah. know, if I just throw out a bunch of restaurants, things will stick and I'll make money. And it's not, it's about, you know, the difference between, you know, volume and nourishment. And I'm nourished now, right? Like it's not, it's not canned soup, so to speak, where you can get yeah. canned soup and you open it and you make it and you can make it in two minutes versus your grandmother or mother spending eight hours cutting the carrots and, you know, boiling the chicken. Yeah. 
There's a different feel to that soup, right? Same chicken soup is chicken soup, but it's not. One is you feel the nourishment. You feel the love that was made behind it. And now that's how I feel with my restaurants. And my, my, my employees feel it. And my customers feel it. There's nourishment behind my business. And that's how I do my coaching as well, right? We discussed that before this call that there's a difference between marketing and nourishment and, and protecting your customers and clients and having a conversation like we are right now. There's a difference. How did you know at the time when you took your SATs? So what did you know at that point in time that you didn't, you took them? So you might have, did you have an interest in, in pursuing a career outside of the restaurants or you just kind of weren't sure? So how did you know to follow the path of the restaurants? I didn't. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, it was, it was difficult, but at, by that time, since I moved so much and I've seen so much changes, I knew that at any point I could change my mind. Right. You know, yeah. So I, I took the SATs, I got the scholarship letters, I got the letters of recommendation because God forbid I change my mind in a year, I can still go back and say, look, it's the same guy. Now I have a year of experience. And uh, so for me, I always did my best. It's just, that was my thing. I just, I did the best I could, right? Not for any reason, but for that reason alone, just do the best you can. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons I've learned uh, from my parents. Uh, You know, if they taught me anything is you don't have to be the best. You just have to do your best. Mm. And that, that, that's a huge one for me. Because when I tried to be the best, there was a lot of thinking behind it. Am I doing enough? Is there, mm. Should I be doing more? So I know if I, if I just do my best, that's all I have to give. So there wasn't much thinking. Again, it brought me back to the experience of who I am in this moment versus who I think I should be conceptually. And that was one of the biggest gifts. And that's how I do all my programs. That's how I do one, my one-on-one coaching. That's how I do my, uh, my restaurants. I do my best that I can. Mm-hmm. And it turns out when we do our best, we're free to be creative. We're free to try stuff out. We're free to explore. And the worst that happens is it doesn't work out. So you do your best somewhere else. That's the worst that can happen. That's pretty powerful. I like that you know, do your best versus, or be your best. What was it? Do your best. <laughs> you know what? I don't know. I just, it no, just I came just, to me while I'm, I was speaking. I think, uh, uh, be the best versus doing your best. I think, I don't know. We're going to have to go back. Yeah. Whoever's listening to this and look at the show notes. Yeah. Cause I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. Uh, I was kind of on yeah. a, on a roll right now. You're on a roll. <laughs> um, so how did you go oh, babe, from, do, do, do the best, <laughs> just do your best. And wait, what was it? <laughs> It was, it was brilliant. I got to write that down brilliant. for myself. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll go back. I'll send it to you. Um, where along the path in your journey then did you go from like in the restaurants to kind of get into coaching? You know, I've always had a fascination when I grew up from moving so much about how humans interact with, with people. It's just because I had to. I had no other option. I had to make friends. I had to uh, be careful of my, my enemies or the bullies. I mean, like I said, I got bullied a lot. I, I, uh, I had big ears. I was funny looking. I had a unibrow. I didn't speak the language. I remember one time my mom, uh, you know, we were broke. We were poor. Uh, we were on government assistance. So, you know, I had hand-me-downs for my brother. One time my, my mom accidentally gave me hand-me-downs from uh, one of her friends. And 
she, you know, I went to school, it was purple pants, but the zipper was on the back. And I realized it was a girl, girl pants because the, the zippers aren't supposed to be back on, on the back for, uh, for guys. And so I was like, so I was walking around the whole day with a zipper on my back. And uh, yeah, so I just, I just, I just was really interested in, in human behavior. I was interested when I opened up restaurants what is the true essence of a leader? What, it, what does it mean when someone comes in and has a bad family life? How do you deal with that at work? You know, there, there's a lot of variables. It's, it's, it's not as simple as it seems to just open up a restaurant and start serving people. There's, there's a lot of moving parts, especially when you're dealing with, with people. And so because of that, I said, I better start to see how humans tick. How do people wake up in the morning? What's important to them? What makes people upset? What makes people excited? What makes people confused and irritated? And thank God, you know, in my journey, I found the three principles, which answered a lot of questions, which, which gave insight to me to see, you know, fundamentally, universally, how we all work which was a big one for me because I was a big NLP practitioner, hypnotherapist, and I studied all sorts of stuff, but something clicked in me once I saw the principles for myself. So for our listeners, how it's how would you describe what the three principles are? Oh, geez. <laughs> it's a question that everybody's like, uh. <laughs> Yeah, so how, how do I describe what the three principles are? The three pr- principles are a... You know, it's funny because I want to give you, as soon as you ask me that, like my first thing is get into the conceptual mm. idea of, of the principles. The three principles are a paradigm that is <laughs> descriptive, not prescriptive, and blah, 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 right? Look, we live in a world of thought. We, we see the world two ways. One is a direct experience like we're having right now. When Here's a perfect example of the principles in action. When I was speaking to you about doing the best I can versus whatever, right? That was not scripted. I still don't know what I said. There is something in us. There is a spirit in us that creates life moment to moment. There is this essence in us that goes from, I don't know where this is coming from. I'm talking to you and I have no freaking idea where it's coming from, but it paints a picture for us. And then when we go back to explain it, we have a tough time, right? Because it's once it's once it's created, it's conceptual. But most of us spend a lot of time in conceptual things, right? So when I was working with my employees, I would come to them and try to fix them based on a conceptual idea of who they think they are, what kind of problems they're having at work. But now I talk about where is that conceptual idea of yourself coming from? Where is it being created moment to moment? And when they can see that they have this infinite well to go into and create again, even when they've had a bad day at home, even when they've messed up at work and they can start from scratch again, that is the principles in action. That is what we are made of. And I got to experience it with you on this webinar, on this podcast. I'm talking to you again to a flow. And then we try to recreate that flow and it disappears. Yeah. Right? Until we connect again to that source that's embedded in us and we flow again. 
that is the principles. That's what people need to know. That's all they need to know. That you have the availability, no matter your history, whether you're a recovering addict, the people I work with, whether you've been a bad person, whether you've been divorced, whether you're remarried, whether you have cancer, whether you're a, a criminal, that you still have this spirit in you that's non-judgmental, that creates no matter where you've been or what you've done, that cannot by design go away. It's an objective thing about all of us that we have this power to create. After this thought and after the next thought that comes and after the next thought, we have a fresh new slate to create again and create again and create again. That's the principles. And that's all that matters to me in regards to explaining it. That's a good explanation. I think that's one that's, I think that's one that people who have never come across it can easily understand from that or maybe take away something from hopefully. Um, Amir, how did you first come across the three principles? I was following a guy by the name of Jamie Smart. Uh, a colleague of mine now and someone I, I still admire. And he had decided to sell his business. He had a business called Salad LTD. And um, he had all sorts of neuro-linguistic programming products. They were incredible. He, he, he is a guy that spends a lot of time to make stuff that's just really good. And yeah. one day I got an email and said, I'm selling my business. I found something different. I don't know how to explain it. Exactly how we, you know, literally what you just asked, what are the friends like, I don't know how to explain it, but this is revolutionary. And I'm going to, he wrote a book called Effortless Evolution, his first book, which is pretty much a draft of clarity. That okay, he, I, was gonna say, I, don't, I, have, I haven't read that one. Yeah, it was, it was kind of like he threw it, you know, and said, if you want to have it, you know, send, send your yeah. information, I'll send you a PDF kind of thing. And it blew my mind. I didn't know how to explain it, but I said, this is it. This is what I've been trying to look for that I couldn't explain and I still couldn't explain it. But something shifted in me that shifted in the way that I spoke to people, that shifted with the way that I connected with people. And even though I couldn't express it in words, people saw it. Yeah. And it was the most magical thing. And so I went, shit, like, I can't, how do I keep coming up with this? Like, how am I going to, you know, figure this out? Because if I want to turn this into teaching my staff or making it into a program, what am I going to do? And, and I realized that was just a thought as well. I have to figure this out. And that blew my mind. I went, wait a minute, what if I don't have to figure it out? What if I just show up with people? And that source that Jamie was talking about figures it out for me, that like we're yeah. talking about that firefighter, the police, or the, yeah. the, the, the teacher in me will show up when it needs to. And it, 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 it did it time and time again. And so I stopped looking, and this seems to be our, our, our theme, a conceptual way of connecting with people. And I threw that out the window, and I just connected with people however it showed up. Because that's something that we don't do as humans. That's, not so, that's something that we, you know, if you go on your Facebook feed, we have eight ways you can connect people, you know, connect with people, <laughs> yeah. four ways to get them into your funnel, two magical ways to get people to say yes. And it's like, no, that's not what I wanted to do. You know, there's got to be a more humane or human way of doing it. And it turns out it's when you get rid of all those strategies, right. it turns out, right. When you throw all the concepts away, what's left is two magical human beings that can do magical things that you could have never dreamt of planning. Yeah. 
there's a power it's the there's a th- the common thread that I see from that and I f- from when I first came across it myself as well is it's a feeling like so when you're sitting there you're like I, I, I don't know how to articulate it but you could you know like there's a feeling inside you something's something's so right with this you know yes um they, like I mean I'd come across like Michael Neal for a couple of years I hadn't really been paying attention because I think it just kind of it, it it lands with you when you're kind of maybe open to hearing it and um, when it really hit home for me was when uh, Dave Elry was on Leanne's Primal Happiness podcast. And I was driving and I was like, oh my goodness, this, this is all this other stuff, you know. But again, it was, it was really just a feeling. Yeah. And, and then when you get it or you understand it, you just want everybody to like get the same feeling. It's like, oh, I have this. You need to have it too. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a feeling. And it's like you finally get to take a break and just be. Be. It's, yes. Just be. Yeah. It's like you get to take a break from what it's supposed to be and you just be. And that's supposed to gets us in a lot of trouble. I'm supposed to be this. I'm supposed to act like this. Sure. I'm supposed to be this mom. I'm supposed to be this. And all of a sudden you just be. And it's just it's fluid it's transient and you get it's to flow human. it's human you know and you can't there's a thing i've had some conversations with and this is i feel like if more people had conversations about just the humanness of life and showing up like you know in those moments of you know when you're struggling with something and like you say like the 99 percent of the time when people aren't posting the you know the facebook or the instagram or you know the, the perfect picture, what's behind it, you know, what, what is the other percent of the time? And I think if more people showed up and had those conversations and I, th- I see it in your group all the time. And I saw it in the program that we did with Anquish is that people were just showing up and saying, you know, like whether it be something that was good or bad. Um, but the power just to have that conversation, yeah, you know, and, 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 and just putting it out there and there's no judgment about it because judgment's kind of a personal perception of something. Um, it's so powerful and you must see this a lot in the recovery center where you're volunteering. Um, but how did this shift for you? Cause you went through, you were doing L- like NLP and then you, you kind of transitioned to this. Was it like a quick transition? Was it? So, how it happened, I actually had a client who came to me and I thought they were coming for business, right? And uh, I don't want to get to the details of what he does or who he is and all that, but he came and he came to my office and he said he wanted to kill himself. And I knew him pretty well. I, I, uh, he's actually known me since I was 15 years old uh, from my restaurants and just, just family life. He knew, I, I knew him. And I was terrified. First of all, I'm not qualified to work with suicide. I, and I was like, oh my God, what am I going to tell him? And I looked him dead in the eye and I said, listen, what I, if I try to alleviate your suicidal ideation with some, some strategy or tool, I would find that profoundly disrespectful because there is something tremendously more valuable than me trying to strategize yourself out of suicide. And this is before I knew anything about the principles or anything. I was, I knew that 
it just didn't feel right to do some NLP strategy on him, like reframe the situation or pre-frame it. I just, it didn't feel right in my heart. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do what shows up for me. And right now you're crying and I'm going to cry with you. And then we cried and we hugged and we sat there for as long as it took until he said, I don't know what happened. I feel better. And I said, okay, well, good, because I didn't know what to do next either. And we just started talking about things and something about that humanness did something for both of us. He hadn't cried like that in a long time. He hadn't been with someone that wasn't going to fix him, wasn't going to change him, wasn't going to find a way to alleviate what's happening. He just was with someone for that moment. He said that was something he hadn't had in a long time with his marriage, with his, you know, with his family and whatever was going on. And at that point, I realized there is a really big piece of psychology missing, which is us. Us, the factor that is, is the biggest piece is, is us. And right, and it's like, I'm now one of my biggest things that I'm comfortable with saying with people when I'm in my recovery center or when I'm working with my clients, when they come up with something that is like, whoa, is I don't know what the F I would do either, honestly. I don't know. Wow. Like that, that's, that would be hard for me too. I don't know. And something about meeting them head on with where they're at, experience to experience, not experience with, oh, I got you. I know what to do here. Ready? Okay, here, get your pen and paper. It's like, that's the truth for me a lot of times. I don't freaking know. Yeah. And from there, it's like, okay, now we have an opportunity to explore together. Now we have an opportunity to look to see what we can see. And that's a different conversation with me being the coach and you being the client, me being the person that has all the answers and you are the messed up person that's looking for answers. It's two people in the same boat, looking out the river, looking out and looking at what we find. And that to me is, 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 is the power of trusting the availability that we both have. And that's why I don't see anyone as broken. Because the fact that you think you're broken, you're using the gift of thought. The fact that you can even think that you're something means that the the system is working. Because the same system that thinks you're broken is the same system that can think that you're unbroken. It's the same system that can think that you are the most amazing person in the world. And at any moment is the same system that can think that you're the biggest loser in the world. That means the system is working. If you can have an identity, that means it's working, right? So to me, that's what people miss. When someone comes and says, you know, I'm broken, I go, great. You're able to see that you can create at any moment. Yeah. It's like if someone, if someone comes to me and says, I made, a, I made a terrible cake. I wouldn't be like, oh, that's terrible. I'm like, great. That means that you, your, your oven's working, <laughs> right? It means your oven's working. It's not that you, yeah. and, that, and you are the oven. You are the source that keeps producing that heat, the light, the energy source to make yeah. another cake. Now, yes, we make some really shitty cakes. I agree. But you're looking at the product and not what's available behind the product. And that's who we are. So keep making shitty cakes. Yeah. Keep making them. That's great. But you have an 
an infinite amount that you can create in an oven. That's to me is, is, is the magic of it all. That's where the power lies. Yeah, that's where the power lies. Man, I'm getting really excited on this call. Sorry, I don't <laughs> feel like I'm more Tony Robbins than uh, ever. <laughs> um, it was, yeah, but it's so true. And it's one of these things that when you're speaking to people, because it's the feeling, like there's a thing where you're saying you're getting excited, but it does, there's so much feeling there. And I love when I'm working with people. And again, like they, they feel like they're broken. Like I do some work with trafficked uh, women and children. And again, it's one of those starting points of when they think they are broken, they've, you know, they're so unworthy. And when you see them and they, and they get that sparkle when they see it, you know, there's nothing that compares to that. Yeah. Like there's such magic in that. And you must see that a lot in the recovery center as well. Every single day. Every single day I see it. And, and, I'll, and I'll tell you the biggest thing I saw, and I share the story and you probably heard it and I think it's worth sharing again and again. You know, like we talked about the principles. For those that don't know the principles, I highly recommend. I have a book, What the F Are the Three Principles, but Sidney Banks, Michael Neal, Elsie Spittle, Jack Pransky, Jamie Smart, Gary Kramer. There's a lot. Just look up three principles on Amazon. You will find Dick and Bettinger. I mean, I can go on and on. There's yeah. a ton of books. And there's a lot of new new authors that have come out that, are, that have incredible books. Jill Whalen, uh, Lindsay Reed. Just, uh, just I can go on. Again, the, the list goes on. The point of it is that I, you know, you can study the three principles. You can figure out, you know, in three principles, there's mind, consciousness, and thought. There's some people that, that actually don't even buy that. And they call it the single paradigm, you know, and there's all these different ways um, of, of describing the principles. And I remember being at my recovery center and I said, what's the best thing you guys learned about the three principles, you know, like about my group and what you've, what I've shared and their response was really, really intriguing. They said the three principles are great and we're learning a ton. But this is the only hour or two that we get to be humans. Mm. We're not judged because of what we did a year ago or two years ago or what I did five minutes ago. I'm not being judged as a recovering addict that needs to get better. I'm not being judged as a failed mother who can't take care of, his, uh, take care of her kids because she was too busy drinking a bottle of wine. This is the only hour that I can show up as me in whatever, wherever place that I am and you love us. And that does something for us every time we leave the recovery center. That allows me to see that I don't need to pick up that drink. That allows me to see how much I love my children. And so with that being said, it was a huge shift for me to go, you can teach people things, but if they don't hear it in the heart, it's, it's pointless. Yeah. You can be the smartest guy or girl in the room, but if it doesn't come from the heart, they're not going to hear it. And so that's the biggest lesson I've seen. That's the biggest lesson we all have to give to others. If the concepts don't work, go back to the heart. Yeah. And after a while, you'll start to go, the concepts ain't going to work anyway. So just go right to the, just, that's why we say go to the heart of the matter. I mean, there's a, we even have a saying for it. Go to the heart of the matter. And that's what matters, the heart. Right, the heart of the matter is the heart, and that's what matters. I mean, I think that could be a slogan. We got to write that one down. <laughs> so funny. 
I'm going to write that one down. Actually, that's a good one. Um, which brings me to, we were talking earlier about one of the reasons I started the podcast was the power of connection, but there's, there's the power of presence and there's the power of having a conversation and just showing up and having that conversation. And I think I see you do it in your group. I saw you do it in our course. Um, and there's, it's something that you can't put a value on that. And that's where I think that we create the biggest space for people is when we just show up with that presence and we say, we're like, I'm here, open heart, you know? And I think that does something. I I know it does for the people that I'm working with and I've seen it in your groups. It gives them the permission to do the same. They show up differently. Yeah. Look, we can, the problem with marketing to me is if I can do a funnel, you can do a better funnel if you want to. If I have really good writing, you can be a better writer. If I have a, you know, if I do cost per click on Facebook and pay for ads, you can, someone else can double those ads and and beat me there. But here's what nobody can beat anybody at is being yourself. You don't have competition there. If you show up as you, you cannot buy enough ads for them to replicate you. You cannot buy enough fun or do enough funnels or do enough email marketing or whatever marketing because there's only one of us in the world. And if we give our gifts, then we will never have competition. And that's what was the essence of our group. That was the essence of what we shared in our group is that you are the missing piece, not your marketing, not what someone else thinks you should buy or sell or some mastermind you should be a part of is that when you realize that you are it, you are what people are buying or wanting to spend time with, there is absolutely no competition unless you have a twin that's exactly like you. And to me, that was the biggest gift. And and all the stories that were shared in our in our in our coaching group in our community was literally at the end you know you're in our group but at the end i asked you know what was the most worthwhile thing and everyone in the group it was fascinating not one person said i found a better way to market my my coaching program i found a you know slicker way to add people in my funnel it was literally i went down the line and i wrote it and i posted it it was like be you come from the heart you have everything you need. Love people from that space. And I was like, everybody got it. I was like, mm-hmm. that, that's when just my heart melted because I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And that the answers were coming from the heart. Something that can't be replicated. And if we have more people like that in the world, I don't know what would happen, honestly. I don't know what would happen. There's a ripple effect. Yeah. You know, um, I wrote it down to talk to you about it after, but I'm going to talk to you about it here. Uh, When we were talking about um, what I want to present kind of in a legal community for, you know, people going through separation and divorce and anguish had said, we never know the ripple effect of what we do or how we show up or, you know, when we speak from the heart. And it's so true, you know. In all of these situations, it's so true. Even, I think you've said a number of times when you've gone into your staff in the restaurant and, you know, you show up and, and you're, you're sharing what you do in that space. 
you know, that's them with their customers. That's them with going home to their families. There's such a ripple effect of all of this that just, it's immeasurable. You know, absolutely. Matter of fact, I have a, an example of that is I had an employee that had a drinking problem and a uh, great guy. And uh, one time we talked about just life and just what's going on in this world and just an honest, sometimes brutal conversation, but from the heart. The next week, his customer service improved. And he, I actually, he's now my, one of my managers at my location. Um, one of my best managers, I should say. And I remember going back to him and asking him, I said, you know, we never really talked about customer service, but man, you get here every day and you just do absolutely amazing stuff. We never talked about how to treat employees, but have you been reading books on like, like how, to, how to work with staff? And he just said, no. He said, you know, we had a talk and my family life got better, hmm. which allowed me to stop drinking, which changed the way I looked at life. So now when I wake up and I kiss my wife and my kids, it brightens up my heart. And when I step into my, in, your, in, in our restaurant, my heart's already shining. So why wouldn't I be loving to my customers? Why wouldn't I be loving to our staff? It's just what happens when your light is shining. And I just went, that was it. And what most people do is they have things going bad in their restaurant or in their business and they pound customer service. I don't give a shit what's going on at home. Yeah. You better come home, come to work with a smile. Yeah. I don't care if you have a drinking problem. When you step in here, your drinking problem stops. Do you guys hear me? But life doesn't work that way. We don't stop living once we get to the restaurant or to a business. We don't stop having those problems magically once we step foot somewhere else. So instead of trying to hammer down a strategy in hopes that it, it, it fixes people, let's make their light shine brighter. Because here's the thing, when you, light a, uh, 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 when you shine a light in a room, you don't get to choose where it goes. You don't get to decide its ripple effect. And you don't get to decide what you see. And so the, light, the, the brighter a light shines, the more the world becomes visible. And so I'm not in the business of strategizing people to a better life. I'm in the business of letting them see that underneath all the things that you've covered is a light that's already shining. And when we uncover all the ideas of ourselves, the conceptual things that we've done, what we're left with is who we are. And that's what I think as, as a person that's non-religious, you know, it's, it struck me when people have bumper stickers and people quote the God, God, the biggest thing that I've always seen is God always says what? I am the light. I am the light. And I get what that means now. Because I am also the light, and you are also the light, and everyone we encounter, they are also the light. And if they can see that for themselves, the world changes. If the world becomes brighter, the world changes. And that's what's for offer. That's pretty powerful, Amir. Thank you.
So Amir, if you were going to leave our listeners, actually, (laughs) I kind of think you just did, um, with a thought or any advice, what would it be? You know, for the men out there, if you take a leak, leave the toilet seat down, you know, if you have a wife at home. It's just just common courtesy. That's that's what I would no. Um, <laughs> um, man, not that's expecting a, that. That's that's a you comment. Yeah, I know. No, I had to throw that in for people that are that are that are sitting in a really deep feeling. I just screwed that up. But, but mic drop. You're all right. Mic drop. All right. Peace <laughs> out. No. Um, look. Just go go live life. Honestly, I mean, I I can give some sort of immaculate thing. Go live life see what you see and know that if you're not seeing something you will see again that's it i mean that's really how i do life and uh, and that's basically it i mean really that that's that's as simple as it gets for me well that is powerful amir i want to thank you for taking the time to uh have i really enjoyed this chat like i said before i had no idea which direction it would go and it went in all sorts of beautiful ways. So I want to thank you. I really, really appreciate you and your time. Thank you for the incredible, you know, I'll be honest with you, like talks like this, or when we get in discussions, the, the ability that you have of asking questions and diving in and, and, and doing what you did brought out so much stuff that I didn't really think about before. So I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, for, your, for your incredible questions and insights and, and just dialogue and uh, for allowing me to, to be me on your podcast. I appreciate it. Take care, Amir. Thank you. What an amazing conversation. Amir shows up so fully and so passionately in everything that he does. I hope you enjoyed it. Here are a few thought bomb takeaways. The secret ingredients in life, in coaching, in business, whatever it is, is showing up as you. There's no one that can do you better than you. And I think Amir really brought that point home. The other thing that he said that I really liked was that life flows better when we're not caught up in trying to conceptualize everything. And lastly, the heart of the matter is what matters. I appreciate the fact that you were here, that you listened. I'd be grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, share this with anybody you think would enjoy the conversation. And if you have any comments or feedback, please don't hesitate to reach out. Until next time, be well, be inspired, be you. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll share this podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with Jessie Lynn, please check out the contact page on her website, jessielynnmcdonald.com. Also, we'd be beyond grateful if you would leave us a review. Join us next time for another edition of the CPR of Life.